Thanks, Alan. Hi, I'm David Mawinney um, from the law firm of Bowditch and Dewey in Framingham, Massachusetts, where I practice in restructuring and insolvency. I'm also a trustee under the new Small Business Reorganization Act, uh, subchapter five of chapter 11 of the Bankruptcy Code. Um, and I'll be presenting today with two terrific speakers. I'll briefly introduce them. Um, Dimitri Lev is a solo practitioner who focuses on consumer bankruptcy and criminal defense trial work. Prior to opening his practice in 2006, attorney Lev worked in a nonprofit financial management and information technology fields. He's currently the co-chair of the education committee and at the BBA and a member of the COVID-19 standing committee. In addition, attorney Lev is a reoccurring guest lecturer at local colleges and universities on the topics of financial literacy and bankruptcy. And in addition, we have attorney Jack Murray, an associate in the Boston office of Nixon Peabody. Um, Mr. Murray focuses his practice in bankruptcy and restructuring. He represents debtors and creditors in chapter 11 and chapter seven cases, as well as out of court restructurings. Prior to joining Nixon Peabody, uh, Attorney Murray was an associate at the law firm of Ropes and Gray in Boston and at Kirkland and Ellis in New York. In addition, he's the co-chair of the finance committee at the BBA bankruptcy section, and he maintains an active consumer bankruptcy pro bono practice. So with the introductions made, here's how uh, the afternoon is gonna proceed. This is a Friday Fundamentals, the basics of bankruptcy. And what we wanna do is give you um, a general overview of how bankruptcy works. And we're gonna focus a lot on creditor interactions with a bankruptcy, because my guess is if you don't practice bankruptcy every day, you are most likely to encounter it because you have a client who is owed money by someone who went into bankruptcy. So we are going to focus a lot on those issues. Um, there is a chat function um, uh, over the Zoom where you can ask questions. Uh, we'll be monitoring that and we'll try to address those uh, during the presentation or after we finish uh, going through the main part of the presentation. So without further ado, I will start off with um, a basic overview of bankruptcy. Um, this is bankruptcy in pictures. And if either Jack or Dimitri could just give me a thumbs up that you're seeing the right first slide. Okay, good, the slide deck is working. We always wanna make sure that that's happening. So <clears throat> this is David the debtor. And David the debtor has in his hand assets and liabilities. He's got some money and he's got some bills, a mortgage, and in the background, David has a large asset, which is his house where he lives. And the, those assets are valued in dollar denominations. But David has a problem. He is being torn apart by different creditors. He has medical debt and credit card debt. He's got student loans pulling on his left leg and car payments pulling on his right leg. And in the background, there's that big monster. That's the... Um, mortgage uh, on his home. In addition, as if things couldn't get worse, David's home is what we call underwater, which means that the value of the debt that he owes to the bank exceeds the present value of his house. 
So he has no equity in the house. What is David to do? Well, David files for bankruptcy. And the minute he does that, automatically, a, a federal injunction called the automatic stay springs into place. It's like a invisible wall that separates David from his uh, pre-petition creditors. And so we kind of visualize it as a timeline in, in you know, the past and future with the petition date, the date David declares bankruptcy uh, is when the stay comes in place and he's in the post-petition world of being in bankruptcy with his assets, but not with his creditors. Then David meets the trustee. And what's happened now is all David's stuff, uh, subject to some exemptions, which we'll get into later, becomes property of what is known as the bankruptcy estate. So the, David is turning his non-exempt assets over to the ba bankruptcy trustee, and she's gonna take those and put those in the pot for later. The trustee also has strong arm powers. These are causes of action, legal rights that she can assert to go out into the real world and claw back property that David might have given to other third parties, perhaps creditors, perhaps not creditors, uh, prior to filing bankruptcy. The trustee can take that money and assets and put it in the estate. So what do creditors do in the meantime? They can't directly go against David for anything because the automatic stays in place. So what they do is they, they file proofs of claim, which is a piece of paper that says how much they're owed, what is the basis, um, do they have collateral? Uh, it's a standard claim form. Most creditors are, should be competent enough to fill it out by themselves. If their debts are a little more complicated, bit larger, they might wanna get an attorney involved. But this is an orderly process for the creditors to line up and assert their claims against the estate. Meanwhile, that mortgage holder, well, he goes to the bankruptcy judge, which is Judge Bailey in this excellent artistic rendition. And he asks for relief from the automatic stay. He wants to get around that injunction so that he can pursue his out-of-court non-bankruptcy rights to foreclose on the house. And Judge Bailey grants relief from stay and the creditor does that. Now notice, he had to go and ask the bankruptcy judge to do it. Even though he's got statutory power of sale in his mortgage documents and wouldn't have to be in court otherwise, because of a bankruptcy, he has to do it. Even though he had winning arguments and he got the relief he needed, still had to ask for relief from stay. Meanwhile, the trustee divides David's non-exempt assets among all those creditors who filed proofs of claim. Everyone gets a slice of the pie. Uh, sometimes it is not as much as, uh, well, frequently it is not as much as the, the face amount of their debt they're owed. That's bankruptcy for you. Um, and Judge Bailey grants David a discharge. A discharge is like a permanent injunction, which David can use as a shield to prevent creditors from ever coming after him again for those debts. So key feature here, bankruptcy does not vaporize debts. It does not make them go away. Um, what it does is it permanently bars creditors from pursuing those debts. 
that's a very subtle distinction, but something that I think is important to, to, to recognize because it is not that the debts are being wiped out in some metaphysical sense. It's that David is, is getting a discharge which prevents debtors from trying to collect them in the future. Now, there are exceptions where a debtor, a creditor might be able to um, get something to be declared non-dischargeable. Um, student loans, for example, are de facto non-dischargeable um, unless David himself does something proactive to try to get them discharged. And if you want to hear more about that, we have a program coming up next week all about student loan dischargeability. Um, so, hey, David. Yeah. I just want to add really quick, just on the effect of the discharge, is that the discharge, as David said, doesn't vaporize the debt. It only prevents a creditor from pursuing the debtor. So, for example, if, if David debtor has a guarantor on a particular debt, a creditor can't pursue David once the discharge is entered, but the, the creditor can still go after the guarantor, and that's an important, important thing to remember. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Jack. Um, and the bankruptcy, uh, my bankruptcy does, doesn't, doesn't stay actions against the guarantor. So a lot of times when you see corporate filings, you'll see the corporations filing themselves and their corporate guarantors, everyone files. Um, in most cases, uh, that, that's, that's what you have to do if you're a guarantor and you want that relief. So now let's get a little bit more into the weeds on bankruptcy. And let's just start by basically introducing the players, who they are. So um, bankruptcy obviously begins with a debtor. Can't have a bankruptcy without a debtor. Um, and that can be an individual person. It can be an organization. It can be a municipality. Um, it can be a nonprofit or a for-profit corporation. Um, debtors can voluntarily file bankruptcy. Um, in some cases, creditors can file involuntary bankruptcies against certain kinds of debtors. You cannot put a nonprofit in bankruptcy involuntarily, however, nor can you file an involuntary bankruptcy against a municipality. And then of course, there's the creditors, the, the people who are owed the money, um, and they can, in some cases, commence an involuntary bankruptcy case. Perhaps one of the most famous involuntary bankruptcies in recent time, would be the chapter seven involuntary proceeding of Bernie Madoff. Um, so what happens after the case is filed? Well, the debtor becomes what's known as a debtor in possession or a dip. And remember in, from the cartoon, your assets are, are separated. They become property of the estate. You can still hold and manage those assets as a debtor in possession. And when corporate debtors file, they continue as a going concern. They're using their assets every day. They're paying employees with cash. They're selling inventory. Um, but they are what's called a debtor in possession of their, of their assets. In the consumer case, chapter 13, it's the same concept. There are creditor committees um, that are, are possible in bankruptcy. Creditors committee is a way of a whole bunch of creditors where individually they might not have the resources to justify being very actively involved in the case, but collectively they, the US trustee can put them on a committee and they can hire a bankruptcy counsel 
to represent them and represent their interests in the case. And the bankruptcy council is actually paid from the estate. So it's a very efficient way of creditors to ensure that they're getting a fair shake in the case without having to spend their own money. And in addition, the creditors committee is kind of looking out for all of the other unsecured creditors who even those who don't sit on the committee. There's also a case trustee that you met in the cartoon. Um, in most cases, there's not always a case trustee in um, some chapter 11 cases that the debtor is a debtor in possession, and there is no trustee. But in liquidation cases and in consumer cases, there is a trustee. Trustees jobs can vary from gathering and liquidating assets to distribute to creditors to um, collecting plan payments in a chapter 13 plan and being a conduit for creditor distributions. And in the newly enacted small business chapter of chapter 11, there is a small business trustee who doesn't technically represent anyone, but is there to um, help foster a consensual plan between the debtor and the creditors. Um, so uh, who's keeping an eye on things? The, the last group of people, so you've got debtors and creditors, creditors committees and trustees. There is of course the United States trustee, not to be confused with the case trustee. And the United States trustee is a branch of the uh, Department of Justice that is tasked with overseeing uh, bankruptcy cases and ensuring that the bankruptcy laws are complied with. They will also investigate uh, bankruptcy frauds, uh, any interference with um, bankruptcy sale processes, for example. And those are criminal offenses, which they can refer to the US attorney. Um, if the judge or on motion of a creditor feels that the case needs some specific uh, expertise or evaluation, the judge can appoint an examiner, which is kind of like a special master if you practice in civil litigation. And the examiner's job will be to usually examine discrete issues in the case. Um, and then finally, in some cases, there's an ombudsman. Um, that would be someone similar kind of to a creditor's committee, but what they are doing like an examiner is looking out for very specific issues. So if you had a healthcare bankruptcy and you knew you were gonna have an issue with patient records, you might have a, a patient ombudsman to deal with that. There's also um, consumer data ombudsmen in cases where there might be large quantities of personal data that the debtor has and the ombudsman's job would be to make sure that you know anything that's happening in the case is going to that data is going to be protected so they're occasionally appointed hey david could i just uh interject for a moment Please i just do. want to add um so the concept so the, the first part if we could flip back to the last slide briefly um yeah. just a note on the u.s trustee and and i think this may sort of for, for non-bankruptcy practitioners um you know if you think back to your civil procedure class and con law class, the concept of standing in, in civil litigation is, is pretty rigid. Um, you know, first of all, the US trustee has standing to appear and be heard and object to almost every aspect of a bankruptcy case. So they, are, they have as broad a possible mandate 
you know, in US laws you can possibly think of. Um, and different US trustees in different districts uh, folk tend to focus on different discrete issues. Um, the second thing relating to standing is that, you know, because bankruptcy is, um, uh, you know, a, an in-rem proceeding with, you know, bringing every, every possible creditor to the same forum, you know, every creditor theoretically is a party in interest that can, that can bring, you know, raise objections to certain items. So it's important. It's not, um, bankruptcy is not just looking at both sides of the V as we think in the case caption. It's really a broad, um, there's a lot of people in the room and a lot of people in court at the same time. Yes, absolutely. So let's take a quick look at the chapters of, of the bankruptcy code because bankruptcy is, it, it's a statutory law. The, the, the four corners of the bankruptcy code is where you will find you know, bankruptcy relief in this country. Um, and there's the, what we call the general or operating chapters and then the specific or substantive chapters. So chapters one, three, and five of the bankruptcy code cover things like definitions, talking about what people can and can't do in bankruptcy and what kinds of claims and causes of action uh, are creatures of bankruptcy. And then in, in, the, in the rest, um, seven through 15, there, that's what chapter, depending on what kind of debtor you are and what you want to accomplish, if you are eligible, you would file under. And those chapters break down as follows. Chapter seven, liquidation. This is where a business that is no longer gonna operate goes to wind itself down. And if you're an individual, this is where you go to basically, uh, you want a quick discharge of your debts. You're, you're not gonna put a payment plan together. You keep your exempt property. And if you're non-exempt property, if you have it, it's going to be sold to pay your creditors. If you wanna retain your property, you file chapter 11 or chapter 13. Can be a corporation, can be an individual. Those chapters are all about getting to a plan called the bankruptcy plan, the plan of reorganization, where the debtor is gonna come up with a way of paying its creditors over time, typically, although it's not always what happens. But the, the point is that the, the debtor retains its property and it continues to exist. Now, obviously, if you're an individual, you continue to exist, okay, um, obviously. Uh, but if you're a corporation in chapter 11, the idea would be, most of the time that you continue to exist. Now that is subject to some major caveats, which I think Jack will probably touch on in a few minutes. Um, really what where chapter 11 has kind of trended in recent years, um, but that's kind of how those chapters work. And then the last three are very special chapters. Chapter 12 is special reorganization for farmers and fishermen. These are people who are individuals some of the time may be loosely incorporated closely held businesses but they're in very discrete sectors and uh, congress for for its you know many reasons just has decided to give special streamlined relief for these very specific sectors of the economy which you know in many times are probably small farming operations or small fishing operations don't really justify a big chapter 11 process Chapter nine is for municipalities. So 
towns and cities can file bankruptcy. Um, municipal uh, municipal corporations can file. So you could have like a county water department that, that you know where it, typically water and sewer has its own separate debt. So you could put that into bankruptcy. States don't file bankruptcy. Uh, a lot of you have probably heard about Puerto Rico is in an insolvency proceeding right now, but PROMESA is not chapter nine. Congress had to create special laws to allow Puerto Rico to go into a restructuring, um, uh, uh, restructuring event that is happening now, still presided over by a district court, but it is not chapter nine. Detroit, on the other hand, was a chapter nine case. And then finally, chapter, oh, did you have something? Oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I was just gonna add on chapter nine that, that each state can decide whether or not their municipalities can and cannot file for bankruptcy. So um, yes. if you recall, I think prior to Detroit, one of the largest municipal bankruptcies was Central Falls, Rhode Island. I believe that was almost 15 years ago. Um, and I, if I'm remembering right, I believe Chelsea, Massachusetts filed for bankruptcy uh, in yep. the early 1990s, but I, um, I'm aware yep. that Pennsylvania, um, Pennsylvania previously permitted uh, municipalities to file for bankruptcy, and I believe there's either a sewer district or a, or a waste disposal district that was on the precipice of bankruptcy, um, and then the state revoked, um, state of Pennsylvania revoked the municipality's ability to file. I don't have a complete breakdown, but it is state by state. States have the power to control whether or not their municipalities can file. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. Definitely states' rights there. Uh, and th the other reason, not to, to nerd out too much on chapter nine, but the reason why, well, why can't you just authorize a, a town to file a chapter 11? Well, really what the difference is, if you, if you actually read chapter nine, it would just say a whole bunch of stuff in the bankruptcy code applies, but a whole bunch of other stuff doesn't. And the reasons for that is because municipalities are special. There, there's things that you can do to a privately held corporation in chapter 11 that you can't ever do to a town or a city. For example, creditors are never going to file a competing plan and take over the city like they, they could theoretically take over a private corporation. So there's differences there. Finally, chapter 15, that's cross-border international insolvency, allows for, um, you know, if a reorganization is happening in Canada, and there's a subsidiary in the US or there's property in the US, you can have ancillary proceedings. So that's like a sort of an international law chapter. Yeah, just, just a note on chapter 15 briefly is that, um, so as David said, some very common for uh, Canadian, sorry, um, companies with uh, subsidiaries or parents in either the United States or Canada, um, you know, occasionally uh, an entity will file in the Canadian insolvency proceeding and then file a chapter 15 proceeding in the United States. What that allows is if there is property in the United States, the Canadian bankruptcy plan can be almost, it's very similar in concept to domesticating a judgment from another state. That, that, that's probably a very close analogy. Um, the, the bankruptcy court in the United States will recognize, that's, that's the technical and recognize the foreign proceeding um, and then the courts will, will in, in essence, coordinate with one another about the administration of assets. Sometimes the United States is the, is the venue for the main proceeding, and then other courts uh, in Canada or European Union will, uh, will they, have a, they have a carbon copy of Chapter 15. There's a UN treaty about it. But it's really, I think, the best way to think of it is sort of about a way to domesticate judgments 
um, from you know insolvency regimes in other countries. Yeah, definitely. So now I'd like to turn it over to Dimitri um, to talk more broadly about the bankruptcy goals. Yeah, so this this elaborates in what you guys saw in the in the cartoons, which by the way were created by this David here. And his depiction of Judge Bailey is spot on, I have to say. Um, a couple of years ago, I was driving in New York and I saw a billboard for a financial planning uh, firm. And the billboard said, in the book of life, you can skip chapters 7, 11, and 13. And I, I was laughing and my wife was looking at me saying, what are you laughing at? But I thought that's a good bit to share. Um, so in bankruptcy, we get into the concept of the automatic stay um, as a part of the fresh start. The fresh start is a very important concept, obviously, for individual debtors mostly, <clears throat> but for businesses as well. The automatic stay itself, the, the wall that David drew is a very accurate representation, just as a, as a practical example. If a bankruptcy was filed at 10.07 a.m. and a foreclosure was scheduled for 10.15 a.m., even if the foreclosure goes ahead, it has no legal meaning, it's void because the bankruptcy was already in effect, even if the participants in the foreclosure didn't know that it was happening. So that's just one example about, um, and there's, um, there's many stories or uh, horror stories that are told about how the foreclosure happened at 10 o'clock and the bankruptcy was filed at 10.07. In that case, the foreclosure had already taken place and, uh, and the bankruptcy may not be able to, to stop it or to invalidate it. Um, the uh, goal of a bankruptcy, at least for individuals, is to obtain a discharge, and we'll talk about how a discharge applies to certain corporate uh, debtors in Chapter 11 as well. Jack's going to talk about that. Um, the equality or the, the equity of distribution of assets is another important concept, and that's where the code provides a scheme or a pathway for creditors to assert their claims based on certain priority groups and if there is money to be repaid out of the bankruptcy, then those groups have the ability to receive uh, distributions based on where they fall. And in general, it's gonna be your secured creditors that are gonna have the strongest rights uh, and the best uh, position as compared to unsecured ones. Um, the way that a creditor could be paid in bankruptcy in a chapter seven, it would be through a liquidation that's uh, commenced uh, by the trustee. In reorganization ca uh, cases where there's a plan, in Chapter 11, the creditors will vote on a plan, uh, and that's the chapter for corporate debtors and for certain types of individuals. And then the individual reorganization, which is Chapter 13, there's no votes, but there are some strict requirements that must be met for a reorganization plan to be put into effect. Uh, could we go to the next slide, please? Thank you. So the bankruptcy estate is uh, this uh, legal uh, fiction, essentially, that's created by the filing of a bankruptcy case. And it, uh, the filing of the case creates an estate that contains all legal and equitable interests of the debtor. Some obvious things that are contained in the estate, as the pictures illustrated, money in the bank, your inventory, your accounts receivables, your real estate, the equipment. Less obvious things that are usually a surprise for individuals who are looking for bankruptcy uh, would be things like a tax refund that hasn't yet been received. If you're a member of a class action lawsuit, your rights within that class action are property of the bankruptcy estate. If your friend owes you $20, that is property of the bankruptcy estate, your right to pursue that debt. 
you have a domain name that's in the bankruptcy estate. The clothing in your closet, your cat is in the bankruptcy estate. Uh, the assessment of what's in the estate is made at the moment that the case is initiated, uh, but there's some exceptions. And the interesting one is this 180 day rule uh, with respect to inheritances. So any inheritance that's received by an individual within 180 days forward from the filing of the case is deemed, and again, this is the legal fiction element, it's deemed to have been received right before the case is filed. So when I work with individuals, I always ask, how old is your grandma? Are you in the will? Because it's important and it matters. Next slide, please. Um, and so exemptions are a function of the, of the bankruptcy law that allow individual debtors to retain certain assets through a bankruptcy. So exemptions apply to individuals and not to corporations. And that's the stuff that the trustee is not allowed to touch and that a person can keep through the bankruptcy. And the way I explain it to my clients is with a school bus analogy. You, you're going to summer camp and you're taking a backpack with you. Whatever fits in the backpack, that's your exemptions. Whatever you leave behind, the trustee, can, can, the trustee gets to take and liquidate and distribute the proceeds to the creditors. Now the backpack can be rather large. And in, for, for example, in Massachusetts, you could fit 500,000 worth of equity in a house into your backpack. Now exemptions are measured by equity. And so that's the debtor's interest in the property. So potentially you could have a $3 million house that has a $2.6 million mortgage because the equity in that home would still be 400,000, which is under the Massachusetts homestead cap. Now there's some procedural requirements to take advantage of the $500,000 homestead under state law. You have to file a declaration, uh, but that's just one example of, um, of exemptions. By comparison, other states have homestead exemptions that are very small, 20, 30,000. We have 500,000. Um, anyone have two cows and 12 sheep? So that's uh, an archaic exemption that's still on the books uh, under Massachusetts law. If you have those animals, you can keep them. They're not, they're not going to the trustee. Um, there are some special rules uh, for exemptions regarding things like uh, college savings accounts and life insurance policies and certain types of benefits that a debtor may receive. And uh, sometimes exemptions are the subject of litigation, meaning a trustee or a creditor may object and say, no, you're not entitled to keep your cow because for example, uh, it's not really a cow, it's really a goat and a goat is not listed in the statute. So you can't keep a goat. Um, but the things that you would expect that a person would need to keep in order to continue existing after a bankruptcy are generally exempt and that's the clothing, you know, the stuff in your house, household goods, a retirement accounts, and then uh, both the state and the federal law pro provides for a wild card, which is a catch-all where you can put any other uh, property of the estate, such as your cat, uh, so that that would be exempt. Um, I mean, note on exemptions, if I might. Um, please. I, I think if you look at um, if you look at Section 522D, and I, and I don't have the state exemptions in front of me, what, what you'll find is that, you know, the, the exemption will provide generally, you know, clothing in the amount of $3,000, an amount that seems rather small. And, and although valuation in bankruptcy is a, it can be contentious and fairly complex, you know, what, what a trustee is going to look at and you say, oh, like, you know, I've got two suits, five sweatpants and, you know, 40 pairs, of, you know, whatever, whatever it is. They're not going to look at the retail value of that. It's sort of what would a trustee, and again, 
asterisk valuation can vary, but um, you know, very, very few chapter seven trustees are gonna seize the sweatpants that you wear and liquidate them. Because you know, what is really the value that a chapter seven trustee is gonna get off of your sweatpants, which is next to nothing. So, you know, when you see the exemption, it says $500 in kitchen appliances, you have to think about, oh, okay, well, they're used kitchen appliances. What's the liquidation value of that? So in, in most cases, most consumers, very few chapter seven trustees are coming after the, the, the small personal property of an individual. Yeah, and let's, you know, let, let's take a car as an exemption. So if, if a debtor owns a car, um, the uh, exemption cap for a car for individuals under 60 years old in Massachusetts is $7,500. Let's say the car is worth 10,000 and there's a $2,500 loan against it. Well, let's say there's a $2,000 loan against it. So the equity in the car is 8,000. The exemption is 7,500. So the car exceeds the exemption. But that doesn't mean that the trustee is gonna seize the car because the trustee is gonna have to make a business judgment determination on whether the seizing of the, of the $10,000 car, paying off the $2,000 loan, paying for a tow truck, storage, insurance, and then liquidating the car is gonna generate anything over and above the 7,500, which the debtor is entitled to. Most likely there, the answer is no. But if you have a $30,000 car with all other numbers being the same, then that's a signal for the trustee to go ahead and seize it because even after repaying $2,000 loan and the $7,500 exemption back to the debtor and incurring and paying the cost for towing and storage and insurance, there's still gonna be enough there that's gonna to go to the estate and benefit the estate. So that's, that's how exemptions generally work is it's a combination of the value, the equity and the business judgment and what it would take to liquidate a particular asset. Uh, a common one that's been abandoned recently is timeshares. It's got a value, but there's not a good liquid market for that kind of asset. So, you know, a timeshare could be worth four or 5,000. It could be worth more. There's not an exemption other than the wild card that would exempt uh, that, that kind of asset, but because there's no good liquid market for it, because they've been kind of worthless, more or less, um, you know, trustees in general haven't gone after timeshares as an asset. I don't know if anybody else has any examples along those lines. I have been in a 341 meeting where the trustee asked the person to remove their wedding ring. Right, right. And I, um, I, I, I heard the story. And yeah. This, right. So, so let's. This let's... person was divorced for the record. <laughs> but um, you know, that is an example of you can't just be completely blithe about this. You know, Jack and Dimitri are right that um, for the most part, your what you consider sort of your everyday stuff is is going to be protected, um, but it doesn't mean that you know the trustees and the trustees know what they're doing. Um, they have a lot of experience. Um, so yeah, they know and where to look and what to ask. There's there's stories. So especially where the wedding ring is not declared at all on the petition. If you check no that you don't own any jewelry, and then you show up at the hearing with a wedding ring now. If the wedding ring was obtained after the bankruptcy was filed, that could be justified. On the day of the bankruptcy, there was no wedding ring, but afterwards the person received one as a gift. So that would not be a part of the estate because that was received after the bankruptcy had been initiated. Uh, but yeah, I've had uh, trustees ask my clients to log into their PayPal accounts right there and then so that they can look at the balance uh, because a PayPal account is a part of the bankruptcy estate. All right. Next slide, please. 
Right. So the automatic stay, we already talked about, that's the wall that triggers the, the, the protection for the debtor. There are 29 listed exceptions in the bankruptcy code to the automatic stay, and many of the 29 have subparts. The most important exceptions deal with domestic support obligations, and that's your child support, alimony, uh, actions regarding child custody, paternity. There's an exception for criminal cases. Those are not stayed by the automatic stay. Things like tax audits, and certain types of evictions are not going to be stayed. Now, if an entity violates the automatic stay, they, they can be penalized and the debtor is entitled to damages and attorney's fees and punitive damages in some, in some instances. There's a strong consumer protection incentive that's built into that part of the law. And that's the part of the bankruptcy that acts both as a sword and a shield. And in the consumer world, we have our bragging rights about large uh, entitlements and awards that we received on behalf of our clients where an unscrupulous lender or a collector went overboard and tried to collect the debt in spite of the automatic stay being in place. Now, just, automatic. Uh, oh, sorry, Dimitri, I just wanted to just chime in. I think if, if those on this webinar take away one, one little tidbit from this moment, if you don't practice in bankruptcy, the automatic stay is, is not, not a time to seek forgiveness. You seek permission. And I think as David showed in the cartoon, you know, if the, you know, if we think back a few slides, even if you have great arguments about why you should be exempt from the automatic stay, seek permission. Um, and I think Dimitri Harp, you know, mentioned in a minute ago with 363K, if you get tagged for violating the automatic stay, which can be as innocuous as sending another bill to the debtor, um, really things that do not seem minor can, it's very easy to trip yourself up with a stay violation. And the, con the bankruptcy judges are scrupulous about, about protecting the automatic stay and, 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 and tagging people when they violate it. Right. And, and I believe, if I remember correctly, the willfulness element, it's not the willfulness to violate the stay, it's the willfulness to, of, of the act, right? So if you send your bill willingly, that's the violation, right? You, you don't have to intend to violate the stay, you just have to intend to send the bill. Um, and, um, yeah, so that's, uh, and I've, I've had, uh, you know, trials and, uh, cases on, on this point where, uh, courts have taken different views actually of what's, uh, what's a violation and what's willful. And there's some interesting, uh, case law on this topic. Um, in certain instances, an automatic stay is, is limited or never comes into existence at all. And that's especially the case with, uh, certain frequent filers. If a person has filed, uh, a certain number of bankruptcy cases, then the automatic stay either has a limited lifespan or never comes into existence at all. But the court uh, is able to extend the limited stay or impose a stay where none, none came in automatically uh, if the debtor is able to meet certain requirements and basically represent that the current bankruptcy case was filed in good faith despite the prior bankruptcy cases that may have been recently filed. Next slide, please. I did have a question. What happens if you don't know about the automatic stay? <clears throat> Is there an affirmative obligation to search a bankruptcy docket prior to any suit or demand? Um, so there's two things here. Um, we're talking about damages for stay violations that were intentional. Um, if you didn't know, the act itself is void. Um, 
or voidable, depending on which jurisdiction you're in. If you're in the first circuit, it's void. So it's like the act has no legal significance. If you took something, you got to give it back. Um, it's a closer question about if you had a burden to actually, if you were on constructive or inquiry notice. But th again, that's really just going to feed into whether you um, you can actually be charged damages for violating intentionally. So it, you know, certainly with you know anyone who's prosecuting a foreclosure, it best practices you you always run the Pacer search um, frequently before you do anything. So more sophisticated creditors are doing skip tracing for this all the time um, because they don't want to be in violation of the stay. A lay person is probably it's going to be a factual argument about intent, um, but it's it's perhaps less likely. Interestingly, not to just spend all the time on the stay, but probably the most interesting stay violation that I've ever heard about is somebody punched someone. Now that's a tort, so you're going to have damages um, for, for torts, but they knew the person was in bankruptcy and it was brought as a 362k violation and the debtor prevailed because this person was trying to collect a debt. They were mad that this person had filed bankruptcy and wasn't paying them. They punched them, and that was the stay violation. There's a case from the 1990s where some kind of a collections notice was generated uh, automatically, and a judge issued a decision. It was half joking, it was where the judge uh, imposed the sanction upon the computer in the amount of 100 megabytes and ordered the computer not to send out notices. It's a published case. You can search for that. <laughs> Um, all right, so the, uh, the discharge is, that's the goal, right? That's the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Uh, individuals are discharged of personal liability. Liens generally survive in REM. There's an exception for certain judicial liens, which could be avoided. Um, where the automatic stay acts as a preliminary injunction, the discharge then becomes a permanent injunction. Um, and uh, Jack will talk a little bit about the role of the discharge in corporate chapter 11 cases, uh, but in a liquidation, uh, a corporation would not re receive a discharge. It would just be, they would just be dissolved. But an individual uh, would be looking at a discharge in chapters uh, 7, 11, and 13. Uh, and that's the goal of an individual consumer bankruptcy type of case. Uh, certain debts are not dischargeable automatically by law and the expected non-dischargeable debts would be debts that are uh, that have not been properly disclosed. Uh, recent income taxes are non-dischargeable. Again, we go to domestic support obligations, child support and alimony, which receive special tr treatment all throughout the bankruptcy process. Government fines and penalties are non-dischargeable. Student loans are not, but we'll get to that because there's an exception to the exception. Less expected types of debts that are non-dischargeable are, for example, debts by in, for injuries caused by drunk driving, non-dischargeable. Condo fees occurred after the bankruptcies filed, they're non-dischargeable. So to me, that one was always a little odd because most debts incurred after a, a bankruptcy are non-dischargeable in any event, but there's a provision in the bankruptcy code specifically for condo fees. In my mind, it says there was a big lobby and Congress listened to it, then they passed it, and there it is. Um, another interesting one, Court filing fees incurred by prisoners, non-dischargeable, go figure. Uh, for some types of debts, a party needs to make a specific request to have a debt deemed non-dischargeable. 
And so the most common example there is fraud, misrepresentation, embezzlement, larceny, and willful and malicious injury. And we have another slide on that topic later on. Uh, so those are not automatically non-dischargeable, but a party has to assert and, and file that claim and then make a showing that usually culminates in a trial in the bankruptcy court where the court has to find that certain requirements have been met before that can be deemed non-dischargeable. And then the flip side of that is the student loans. So they're accepted from discharge by statute unless the debtor files a, uh, an adversary proceeding that Jack's gonna talk about and makes a showing that the student loan would impose an undue hardship. And then it becomes an exception to the exception and a student loan may be discharged in certain instances. I have to do a plug. We're doing a program on student loan dischargeability at the Boston Bar Association on Tuesday. Please look it up and please sign up. We'll talk about the exception to the exception and instances where student loans may in fact be discharged. Uh, I think that's the end of my slide. All right, great. So now let's turn it over to Jack and talk about business bankruptcies. How does a chapter 11 case work, Jack? All right, great. Thank you, David. Thank you, Dimitri. Okay, so uh, chapter 11, I think this is probably the, the biggest buzzword chapter that many of us are familiar with just in the news with companies filing for bankruptcy. Um, th this is the, uh, in, in all but very few exceptions, when someone says a so-and-so company has filed for bankruptcy, they have filed for chapter 11. Why is that? So the chat, unlike in chapter seven, uh, chapter 11, the debtor is, operates its business as a debtor in possession with the same powers as a chapter seven trustee. And I, I don't mean to confuse you needlessly. Um, I know that the word trustee, there's about 19 different people who, who are called trustee in bankruptcy, but the chapter 11 debtor, it's as though the, they try to make it as seamless as possible and the chapter 11 debtor in possession continues to operate just as though they were not bankrupt. But bankruptcy is a big deal. As David said, it, which is similar to uh, the cartoons that David showed, um, when a, uh, because once you file for bankruptcy, um, you can't pay pre-petition claims. So how does a business continue to operate? Creditors are not likely to deal with a business if they're out of the money. Like why would, uh, why would a dairy continue selling to an ice cream shop if the ice cream shop went bankrupt? So there are that and a lot of other motions need to get filed on the first day of the case. We're called, called first day motions. Um, one of which we see below is something called a critical vendor motion, where even though the general rule is that uh, pre-petition claims can't be paid, the debtor can go into court to the bankruptcy judge and say, judge, I need, these, I need to pay these critical vendors who are not gonna do business with me anymore unless I pay them. So the judge can grant specific relief on the first day of the case. And I think David will or we'll talk about the doctrine of necessity in a minute um, to permit um, the bank, to rent the debtor possession to pay certain pre-petition uh, pre debts uh, very early on so that the debtor makes a smooth transition in chapter 11 and continues to operate in the ordinary course. Um, another uh, key first day motion, of course, is cash collateral and dip financing. Why did you file for bankruptcies? Because you're out of money. So what do you need? You need more money. So you get dip, debtor in possession financing. What that is, is that a, uh, a lender, um, typically it's your pre-petition lender, um, will provide the debtor with additional financing for the case. 
And what the bankruptcy judge will do, can do, is grant that lender a super priority lien. So to skip ahead of everybody else, all the other pre-petition creditors, and said so the dip lender has a super priority lien over all assets. This is something you know that, that just doesn't exist anywhere else in law. But um, if you are a dip lender, you have it's pretty close to bulletproof, bulletproof uh, securities you can possibly get. Another advantage for the dip lender is that the dip lender by controlling the purse strings and controlling the financing of the case can control the milestones, can control the timing, can really, really drastically influence the debtor and how the debtor is gonna operate this case. Um, sometimes in a sale case, which we'll talk about in a second, um, the, uh, the dip lender can dictate the terms of an auction uh, because the dip lender has the money and without the money, the case will, the debtor will be forced to cease operations and liquidate. Why don't we, why don't we go to the next slide? So uh, as I said, you know, chapter 11 is sort of the de facto business chapter, but not all chapter 11 cases are created equal. Um, there's what I call sort of the traditional case, the section 363 sale and the prepackage case. The traditional case is what we've been discussing where the debtor files and um, moves and uh, works towards a plan of reorganization, um, can go anywhere from six to 12 months uh, to completion. Um, when you think of what a traditional case is, I think the best example nowadays is PG&E, the utility on the West Coast, or Purdue Pharma, which is in the Southern District of New York, um, asbestos, uh, those cases over time, or airline cases. There's two big Latin American airline cases in the Southern District. They're working through, uh, the debtors working with creditors, continuing to operate. These airlines are continuing, continuing to fly. Purdue Pharma is continuing to make pharmaceuticals, um, but they're working towards proposing a plan of re reorganization. The Section 363 sale is um, also equally as common, if not more so, where the debtor will file the case and sell all or substantially all of its assets to another party. Sometimes that's a pre-petition uh, creditor, sometimes that's a third party. I think the best example, if we think back to the last financial crisis, is General Motors. I believe that case filed middle of February of 2009. Uh, there was a section 363 sale. Uh, the bankruptcy judge entered that sale order and approved that sale. I think it was within a week of that case filing. So what happened in General Motors and the, the 363 sale case, sometimes there will be an auction um, of the debtor's assets. Um, sometimes there will be a stocking horse bidder who lines up ahead of time and says, I would like to pay this much. Anyone else wants to come? These are the terms. Um, the auction, the sale is closed, the money changes hands, the money gets placed into a pot, and then eventually that money is distributed pursuant to a plan or whatnot. But as in the General Motors case, there was General Motors filed, there was a quick sale, all of the operating assets moved into new GM, and then old GM wound down over a series of years. And I think I, I, think I saw that those cases finally closed, the General Motors cases finally closed, I think in like two weeks ago. So claims administration can take years in bankruptcy court as creditors and, and the, the remnants of the debtor fight over uh, the proceeds of a sale. The last Lehman, case- Lehman Brothers is still going, yeah. as is Madoff. I right. mean, credit, creditors are still getting distributions um, I mean, they're, they're, the, those, those cases are in like the seventh inning stretch, but they're still going. Yeah. 
Um, the last type of case I want to talk about is the prepackaged case. Um, and uh, yeah, sorry, thank you. Um, just want to talk about the prepackaged case. These are uh, becoming a, a larger trend, but only in the mega, mega case realm. And what makes a prepackaged case unique is that uh, the company will understate, we need to file for bankruptcy. There's some, there's some uh, liquidity crunch or there's a big debt maturity and it's just not working out. Um, usually what will happen is that if there's, if you look at the company's capital structure, sometimes there'll be a first mortgage, you know, a first lien debt and a second lien debt. Um, sometimes what will happen is that, you know, either the first or second lien debt will equitize. So wiping out everyone above them and what creditors, those, in those cases, the debtor will solicit votes on a plan ahead of time. In a prepackaged case, because you have to solicit votes prior to the petition, right? Your trade creditors, your, your utility companies, your landlords, you're not going to solicit them for a vote because there's just too many, too many creditors. Um, so uh, usually these are just, you'll pay those trade creditors in full, right? So they will ride through the bankruptcy case totally unaffected. Um, but the, uh, it's really only among the funded debt creditors, your, you know, massive, you know, bondholders that they, they are really voting and some of them will you know, not get 100 cents on the dollar. So the prepackaged cases for very, very large corporations that are very sophisticated. Um, the prepackaged bankruptcy case is very common in the oil and gas sector. We're seeing it more in uh, some retail last week or two weeks ago, there was a prepackaged case that filed in the Southern District of Texas and the case filed and confirmed and exited bankruptcy in 24 hours. And again, that's because the pre-petition, the bondholders, they voted ahead of time. But that case, the, the debtor's plan was to pay its trade creditors 100%. They don't get the vote. In fact, why don't we flip to the next slide? We can talk about plan confirmation. So once a, once a debtor files, the whole goal, even in any of the three uh, case categories we discussed, is to work towards confirming a Chapter 11 plan. So that's a two-step process first. The debtor proposes a disclosure statement that describes the plan, and then uh, then it's the plan itself. Um, in most cases, that's a two-step process. In some of the mega cases with sophisticated creditors, that can be compressed into one step. The disclosure statement is basically what, what once the disclosure statement is approved, that's sent out to creditors, and that tells a creditor everything they need to know about a plan and why they should or should not vote in favor of a plan. The plan describes how the how the creditors are going to be treated. It, uh, the plan breaks up creditors into different classes, and creditors in a class are uh, able to vote only if their claim is impaired. So, as we discussed a second ago, in a prepackaged case where trade creditors or landlords are being paid in full, they don't get to vote on a plan. Um, there's a whole, we could go on for hours about uh, the the standards for confirmation. Generally speaking, um, the, uh, to confirm a plan, at least one impaired class of creditors has to accept the plan. So the idea is that you know, a class of creditors who, who isn't getting 100 cents on the dollar has to go along with it in order for the bankruptcy court to confirm the plan. I think this goes back to sort of the fundamental fairness of bankruptcy. Um, and at the sort of making sure that there's uh, some sort of orderly and equal distribution of credit of, of, uh, of the estate assets. 
Um, of course, a plan can be confirmed over the uh, objection of creditors if it is fair and equitable and does not discriminate unfairly with respect to a rejecting class of creditors. Again, that we could spend we could spend several hours talking about you know standards for confirmation. Let me flip to the next slide. Uh, this is just a, a brief, a, a shorthand comparison of the standards or the timeline for the different uh, types of cases that I discussed. So as you see, the traditional Chapter 11 case on top, that can go anywhere from you know 120 days, 180 days to years before a plan is confirmed. Section 363 sale, uh, those can move much, much faster. Uh, again, it's in the General Motors case. Uh, the sale hearing was conducted within, I believe, a week of that case being filed. But plan confirmation and that, those cases didn't really finish up until years and years and years. But again, General Motors has been operating, you know, new GM has been operating since 2009. And as we discussed, the prepackaged plans can happen very, very quickly, can confirm within 24 hours, usually within, typically within 60 days of a case. With that, I think that's all I have on chapter 11 cases for right now. And I think we're gonna flip it back over to David for how creditors are paid. Thanks, Jack. So um, like we've said multiple times, uh, the most frequent way that you as a lawyer will encounter bankruptcy is because an existing client or maybe a referral will tell you they got something in the mail about a bankruptcy and they wanna ask you, what do I need to do? Um, and so, your, your job a, a lot of times as a lawyer is going to be um, how to protect your, your client's rights as a creditor in the bankruptcy case. So in the cartoon and several times we talked about the most important thing. Well, there's two. Don't violate the automatic stay. Can't say that enough. But number two, file your proof of claim before the deadline or else it will be barred from the right to share in the, in the bankruptcy distribution. So um, creditors' claims are very broadly defined in the bankruptcy code. Um, the claims can be unliquidated, they can be contingent, they can be disputed. Um, it's, a, it's the broadest possible definition of claim. And to participate, you file a proof of claim, which is a standard form that you can Google proof of claim bankruptcy, you'll get the, the three-page PDF form. In a lot of the bigger cases, there's a claims agent that will allow you to file um, online through their website. And most of the bankruptcy courts now allow for electronic filing. So again, filing a proof of claim is, is really simple and quick and something every creditor should do. Um, there are different priorities to payment because unfortunately there's often not enough money to pay everyone in full. So certain uh, claims get um, priority treatment, which means they do have to be paid in full. And if the debtor can't pay those claims in full, the debtor really can't reorganize successfully and they're, they're just going to have to liquidate. Right up at the top of the list is domestic support obligations. Um, second is as administrative expenses, including um, professional fees, which the three of us love. Um, obviously, no one's going to no one's going to prosecute a bankruptcy case for free. Um, certain taxes, employee wages, everyone who's providing sweat equity to the debtor post-petition is not going to have to work for free. And, and they are going to come before pre-petition debt in, in getting paid. Um, and, and I think it's, it's important to point out that the second class or the third doesn't get paid until the first is paid in full, right? So mm -hmm. it's not 
it's not it's not that every class gets a piece it's that you have to completely satisfy the first class before you can pay the second and completely satisfy the second before you can pay the third etc um, yes, although not always, because I think in a, if you propose a plan, right, your first quarterly distribution to unsecureds could happen at the same time that you're paying a priority debt, right? I mean, maybe I'm wrong on that. I, I know. No, in well, that, so, no, I think I, I think the timing is a separate issue than 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 the the actual distribution. So. For, oh for, yeah, right, yeah. right. Yes, no, I see what you're saying. Yes, you, you can't justify paying your unsecured creditors anything unless you can show that you've got the money to pay the higher um, echelons. And that is absolutely true. You will see at the very, very bottom is the debtor. Um, there are occasionally 100% plans. And if there's even more money after all that, uh, equity will, is entitled to the money because it is the debtor's property. Yeah, I want to uh, just to pause on that briefly, and that that priority of payment is equally applicable in Chapter 11. And I just want to point out that uh, insolvency is not a requirement to file for Chapter 11. Yeah, um, true. So I think if you think about Purdue Pharma and PG&E are two classic examples of companies that were solvent, but they filed because they had to deal with um, lots of lo tort lawsuits, and you can sort of bring everyone into one form to resolve that. But in PG&E, for example, PG&E, I, I believe it's still a publicly, publicly traded stock. Um, there was enough money to pay creditors, quote, in full, even if, even if not every creditor got what they thought they wanted, there was a global settlement and the, 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 the case was a, a uh, solvent debtor case. And that's how equity, pre-petition equity, retained their interests in uh, PG&E. So just that's how that priority of payment waterfall is applicable in a chapter 11 case. Um, there's another way of paying certain uh, creditors quickly, uh, which is the doctrine of necessity. It's a little bit of a case made law, um, but it, it essentially the argument is this. Um, it's look, I have a pre-petition debt, but I am a vital supplier to this company and I need to get paid on that debt quickly so that I can keep making the things that this company needs. And so there are courts that recognize this. It's not everywhere. It's starting to be chipped away at, I think, a little bit in certain circuits. But um, there, there, this is a, a way of under the, the bankruptcy court's equitable powers. And of course, if there is liquidity to do it, where some creditors will get to jump the line if they are critical vendors. Um, leases and contracts are another form of uh, relationship where there will be debts owed, but it's a little bit different because here you're not just talking about paying your counterparty, but also whether you're going to continue to be a party to their contract or lease. And the one condition in bankruptcy is if you are going to assume a contract or a lease, you've got to cure it up. So you've got to cure the default before you can assume it. Debtors can also reject contracts and leases in bankruptcy. So if you want to break your lease, you can do that. The landlord will have a claim uh, for, for that break. It's treated as a, a breach of contract, but you, you can get out of an onerous contract. So 
just a note on rejecting leases and contracts is that if the debtor can, if they're going to reject a contract, they have to reject the whole thing. So if you're right. if you're leasing a parking lot, a warehouse, and a factory, and it's on the same lease, you if you reject it, you reject all three. Um, yes. If there's three separate leases, that's three separate rejections. But it's important to keep that in mind. You don't yeah. get to pick and choose the best parts of a contract. Exactly. Um, intellectual property licenses are another form of executory lease or contract. They have a little bit more special provisions in the code um, because a lot of times it's not as simple as just leasing a piece of equipment. Sometimes you might be licensing IP to someone that uses it in their own business. And it would be a bit draconian if you could just sever that relationship and pull the IP back. Um, so Congress recognized that. And in, in certain circumstances, they, they will allow your, license, your licensees uh, to continue practicing a patent um, or using a copyright or trademark, um, even if the debtor rejects it. Um, Landlord-tenant issues are going to come up a lot in, in smaller cases. Small businesses typically don't own the real estate where they operate. They're, they're usually lessers. That's a major issue uh, in during the pandemic in 2020, right? Businesses shut down. Got to keep paying the rent. There's been a, lo a lot of that in the news. Um, bankruptcy essentially gives the debtor a breathing spell uh, after they file where they don't have to pay rent. Um, but eventually, if they are going to assume that lease, they've got to pay what they're what they're owed, what the landlord's owed. So it doesn't uh, solve the problem forever um, in terms of in terms of curing the, the lease payments. Um, but there is a, the ability to have a breathing spell um, for a little while. Um, and then, so that's that's about it. The one other thing I want to say about claims, just quickly, is if you have what if you have collateral? Now, there's an old adage that liens ride through bankruptcy, and that's most of the time true. Um, and what that basically means is if I'm a um, if I'm a bank, I have a mortgage on a house, the personal obligation could be discharged in bankruptcy. So I can never sue that person individually for the for the um, debt. But I still have the mortgage on the house. And so um, I still have the right as a as a creditor to foreclose on that property even after the bankruptcy. The bankruptcy doesn't vaporize my mortgage, um, but most of the time, what will happen is that you know the bank is perfectly happy continuing to get monthly mortgage payments, and so that's usually just what happens: is that everything stays in place and the debtor keeps paying the mortgage. So they they will keep paying that debt because they can do it voluntarily, of course. Um, the debt isn't vaporized, it's still there. Um, and they're paying that because otherwise, if they don't, the, the bank can still absolutely foreclose on the property. So that, that's just a distinguishing collateral from claims. Bankruptcy doesn't take your collateral away. Um, uh, it, 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 it just right, shapes and affects your debt and how you can collect the debt. Yeah, the, the way I explain that point to my clients is that you, Mr. Client, no longer owe the money to the mortgage bank, but your house still does Yes, because exactly. it's, an, it's an in-rem lien. So as long as the bank receives the payments, it doesn't matter whom the bank is receiving the payments from, the house is going to be safe. 
mm-hmm. if the bank stops receiving the payments, then the bank can exercise its rights now under state law and go ahead and repossess the collateral through a foreclosure. So now we're getting to yeah. the the um, the exceptions to a discharge and to what extent judgments in state court can affect the dischargeability of a debt in the bankruptcy court. And so exceptions to discharge are most often going to be the case in individual cases. And I guess I can best explain this concept with an example uh, and a war story. So I had a client who received a judgment against him in California for intentional infliction of emotional distress, which fits into 523A6, willful and malicious injury exception to discharge under the bankruptcy code. So the holder of that judgment came into the bankruptcy court and said, hey, I have this California judgment for intentional infliction of emotional distress. It squarely fits under willful and malicious injury. The judgment should be accepted from discharge with the double negatives, meaning not discharged. And and the, and the bankruptcy judge agreed, said, yeah, well, you know, intentional infliction of emotional distress is an intentional tort. Willful and malicious injury is intentional torts. The uh, California judgment rides with the bankruptcy. So we appealed and the appellate panel came back saying that the exact elements of what constitutes intentional infliction of emotional distress under California law does not exactly match the elements for willful and malicious injury under the bankruptcy law. And the distinction was that in California, the standard was reckless disregard of the probability of an injury. But under the bankruptcy code, the standard is substantial certainty of an injury. So if you want to wrap your brain around that, that was two years of my life around 2012 (laughs) and we won. (laughs) So that's that's all there is in this slide. Um, and so here we have the elements under what I think is the most common non-dischargeability claim in consumer cases, and that's the fraudulent representation um, under 523A2A. And so that's going to be um, probably a lender claiming that a consumer may have lied on their application, or it could be a disgruntled relative, or it could be a customer who feels ripped off. Uh, we see a lot of these uh, of these in the construction litigation cases, either against the contractor or sometimes against the homeowner, where um, the contract just went bad, and so one of the parties ends up in bankruptcy, and the other party will bring a claim uh, stating that these elements have been met, and therefore the debt should be discharged. Uh, it ends up being a trial in the bankruptcy court most of the time, and uh, courts tend to construe exceptions to discharge liberally in favor of the debtor and strictly against the party that's objecting. So it tends to be a challenge, but there's a lot of published case law on this. And I have a few that are, that just went to trial by Zoom over the last couple of months actually that are still pending. So we're gonna, we are running low on time, but we did wanna just cover briefly litigating in bankruptcy court. which is uh, something that if you're a civil litigator, uh, don't be intimidated by. You, you, you most, yep. it, you'll find it's mostly the same. So Jack, do you wanna uh, take us through these? Sure, I'll, mindful, mindful that we're a little short on time, I'll try to be, be quick. So bankruptcy court, um, you know, there, there's really two types of uh, proceedings in bankruptcy court. Uh, there's really the bankruptcy-based issues and the non-bankruptcy-based issues. So bankruptcy-based issues, um, you know, is a, is a claim a, uh, am, am I a critical vendor on a first day hearing? Am I 
Uh, is this dip loan acceptable? Uh, those types, you know, can I confirm this chapter 11 plan? Non-bankruptcy related issues, I think is one of the things Dimitri was talking about a second ago, um, you know, is this debt non-dischargeable? But, but what that question is really asking is, did the debtor commit fraud, right? So there's really two kinds of issues. There's really two types of claims. There's claims that are only bankruptcy things, that are only, um, uh, only creatures of bankruptcy law, and there's, creatures, there's claims that are creatures of state law. So like, again, like a lawsuit for fraud versus can I confirm this plan? The best way to think of it is that if it's a bankruptcy related issue, it proceeds by motion and a contested matter. And we'll, and again, I'm gonna, there are more, um, more slides on this, but I'll sort of try to be brief. Um, motion practice in bankruptcy court is, it moves very quickly, but um, you are entitled to discovery uh, and there are evidentiary hearings. Uh, but again, this is, it is very, it moves very fast in motion practice. Um, a a non-bankruptcy related issue moves by an adversary proceeding, which is uh, really a, uh, a full-blown lawsuit, a case within a case. Um, and it, that proceeds very much like traditional civil litigation. Uh, most of the federal rules of civil procedure apply. Um, so it's, it is very familiar to ordinary civil practitioners. But David, why don't we flip to the next slide? Uh, we've talked a lot about the automatic stay. I don't think we need to cover that again. You want to move on. Um, so there are a couple procedural considerations. Um, even if you, uh, even if the, you have jurisdiction to be in bankruptcy court, there are times where uh, the bankruptcy court could abstain from hearing a particular matter or a particular case. Um, this is very rare. Uh, most of the time, um, bankruptcy court moves so fast that it could be advantageous for either the debtor or the creditor to be in front of the bankruptcy judge as opposed to being one of, um, you know, being, uh, you know, thousands of, thousands of, uh, behind thousands of dockets in state court. Um, so, you know, most people would probably prefer to be in bankruptcy court. Um, so that's, that's rarely an issue that we see. If you want to go to the next slide. Um, the Rule 2004 exam, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the, uh, beginning of this presentation, um, the rules in bankruptcy in terms of standing uh, are, are very different. Standing in bankruptcy is much, much broader. And so is uh, really discovery. Uh, the rule 2004 exam, um, which is brought in the bankruptcy case. So, so sorry, a little asterisk. If there is an adversary proceeding, the rules of civil procedure will apply and the traditional discovery rules apply there. But if there's a bankruptcy related issue, again, plan confirmation or uh, some sort of critical vendor issue, or uh, even just an initial examination of a consumer debtor, the Rule 2004 exam is as pretty close to a fishing expedition as you can ever get in an American courtroom. Um, the Rule 2004 exam is extremely broad. That's not limitless. I mean, it depends on who's being targeted, but the uh, it, it is exceptionally broad, and it's really meant to uncover um, any 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 issue that is relevant to the administration of the estate. Want to flip to the next slide? Um, as we talked about contested matters versus adversary proceeding, a contested matter principally concerned the debtor or the estate. Um, motion practice can be can hear evidence. You can have a you know a four or five day trial uh, in bankruptcy court with evidence uh, that is technically on motion practice. Um, you can get discovery. Uh, in, in a contested matter. But typically, 
um, they are they are fast moving proceedings that uh, that that are um, summary summary proceedings uh, to move quickly. As I mentioned, an adversary proceeding, um, typically something that's brought against a non-debtor concerning the concerning the estate. It's it's really an action that could be brought um, outside of a bankruptcy. It's a cause of action that would exist if the bankruptcy wasn't around. Um, it is very, very similar to a uh, uh, ordinary civil lawsuit and civil practitioners should not, should not be too frightened about proceeding in an adversary proceeding. Um, move to the next slide. Yeah, mindful that we are uh, running out of time. I think we've covered contested matters again. And again, very similar. These are some of the adversary proceedings that uh, are described to ob object or revoke a discharge um, obtain an injunction, uh, recover money or property. So I think if you think back to the uh, David's cartoon, if the chapter, if the trustee wants to avoid a transfer um, and recover money or property from a third party that the debtor gave to that third party, the trustee would file an adversary proceeding and sue the third party to recover that money or property and bring it into the bankruptcy estate. That's probably the more most common, one of the most common adversary proceedings that's filed in bankruptcy courts. And I think with that, I might flip it back to Dimitri to cover appeals. Yep. And if you're not happy with what happens in the bankruptcy court, you get to appeal. So the the quirk here that separates us from typical federal court appellate practice is the existence of this intermediary entity called the BAP, the bankruptcy appellate panel. And um, so that's that's there because the bankruptcy court itself uh, is um, operates by reference from the U.S. District Court. Uh, that's why before 1978, bankruptcy judges used to be called referees, not because they wore you know striped uh, T-shirts, but because they operated by reference from the U.S. District Court. So if you're unhappy with the decision in the bankruptcy court, you have three options. You can go to your regular U.S. District Court and seek an appeal there, or you can go to the bankruptcy appellate panel, which is actually the default step. The bankruptcy appellate panel is comprised of other bankruptcy judges from the circuit. So in our case, it would be Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, Rhode Island, and Puerto Rico. And they sit in panels of three judges. So a bankruptcy appellate panel case out of Massachusetts, you're not gonna see any Massachusetts judges that's by design, but you will have three judges from one of the other states in our circuit. Um, and the BAP is the default when you file an appeal from a ruling of the bankruptcy court, or you can make an election to go to the district court. And then your the ruling of the bankruptcy court would be reviewed by one judge. Uh, let's go to the next slide. Um, actually, let's go back. <laughs> Sorry, yes. Uh, or you can seek a direct appeal right, and that's path number three, right to the circuit bypassing the BAP and bypassing the district court. And that happens if you meet certain requirements, which let's go ahead, two slides. The requirements are right there. So if, um, oh, no, they're not, next slide. That's the requirements. So if you wanna bypass the BAP and the district court and you meet uh, the requirements that are listed here, then you're able to seek a direct appeal right to the circuit. Or if you go to level one to either the BAP or the district court and you're unhappy with the ruling there, then you can take an ordinary appeal to the circuit as you would from a non-bankruptcy case. 
And then after that, of course, there's the Supreme Court, which is discretionary review if you're unhappy with what happens at the circuit level. And the Supreme Courts do, do uh, take bankruptcy cases and rule on them. And um, that's where a lot of our law comes from. Anything else comment. to be said about appeals? Yeah, just one comment on appeals. Um, not every circuit has a BAP. Right. Um, the First Circuit, first six, uh, about half the circuits do. Um, one quick question: If you are, if you're not happy in bankruptcy court, depends on the issue. You can try your luck with the BAP, who people are judges who are going to know and understand bankruptcy, or you can take your chance with an ex-U.S. attorney who's now sitting on the district court and maybe is not as perhaps not as familiar with the bankruptcy court. Um, so it depends on the issue. It depends on uh, if you're the uh, appellant where you think you have the best best shot at, but it is unique uh, to bankruptcy to have sort of the two avenues uh, as to where you go. And in very rare cases, as Dimitri pointed out, you can take the express lane and go right to the circuit, but those are, those are um, uh, few and far between uh, those for, for the circuit to grant direct appeal. The, the advantage with the BAP is that you'll almost always, in my experience, always get an oral argument. Um, so that's, uh, that's a good uh, you know, way to advance your case. Uh, we have a couple of minutes for questions or we can tell jokes or horror stories. I imagine the BAP, it might be faster too. Um, There's a pretty strict timeline. Uh, they usually want to brief, uh, you know, within, what is it? 45 days, I think, of the, of the docketing. The, the BAP is staffed with its own full-time clerks that are just looking at bankruptcy appeals and they're bankruptcy experts. So that, that's another issue. Sometimes when you're, if you're appealing to the district court, it really depends on what judge you get randomly assigned to and then that judge's own process for receiving bankruptcy appeals and judges a dis, Article Three US district court judge. So they're handling uh, you know, criminal matters and civil matters and they have a, a, a much busier docket than just bankruptcy appeals. So um, you know, that, that's sometimes creditors that are being sued for fraudulent transfers might want to, you know, if they lose in the bankruptcy court, they might want to appeal to the district court because they might think that's going to take longer to get a final judgment. Um, it, but, you know, it really kind of just depends. Those are intangible things. So. Um, speaking about district courts, one thing that we didn't talk about was just the jurisdictional issue. And I think Dimitri mentioned this a second ago, is that um, bankruptcy courts operate as, as units of the district court and the district court refers bankruptcy cases to bankruptcy courts. Um, bankruptcy judges are Article I judges and have somewhat limited powers. They can do just about everything. Um, but one, one concept to think about is that occasionally um, a creditor could move to withdraw the reference, which basically means taking, it could be the whole case, it's very rarely the whole case, but it's usually a discrete issue and the, um, take that discrete issue up to the district court. Um, one one uh, type of claim that cannot by statute be tried in, uh, in the bankruptcy court is a, a wrongful death tort um, that, that cannot by, by, you know, by statute 28 United States code cannot be tried in the bankruptcy court that has to be tried in the district court. So again, a little bit, little, little nerd out point, but um, there is a way to sort of get at, do, do bankruptcy, um, but get out of bankruptcy court. And that's to withdraw the reference up to the district court. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great point. Well, again, I, I like to thank 
Dimitri and Jack for their excellent commentary today and to, to you for taking your afternoon with us and, and the excellent questions that we got through the chat. Um, this slide deck should be available through the BBA. This is also being recorded, so um, hopefully you'll have it as a resource in the future. Um, and with that, I'm going to turn control back over and, and thank you very much for your, your time. Thank you, everyone. This is great. Have a Thanks, everybody. All right. Have a great day.